I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. Whether you celebrate the actual days or not, the holiday season is, for most, a time of year where we delight in the comforts. The warmth of a fire, the coziness of a sweater and comfy pants, home-cooked meals that fill our tummies while the world, even during a pandemic, feels like it slows down as the clouds enwrap you like a hug. But not everyone gets to delight in those comforts. Since today's story takes place in Seattle, I will use their information for some statistics. Although the Pacific Northwest weather is deemed unpleasant by those that aren't cool like us rainy day lovers, it still remains an area that struggles to provide the necessary support for the houseless community members. We will also be joined by former houseless person and current advocate for the houseless, Anitra Freeman. Please stay tuned after the story to hear her powerful interview where she talks about her experience on the streets, how the police let a serial killer target the houseless in Seattle, and what her organization does now to support her community members and those lost to the elements or violence. Speaking of houseless, most of us have heard and used the term homeless. That term homeless not only creates the visual of someone sleeping on the street, it implies someone struggling with maintaining housing is missing a home. But a home can be anything. It can be your community, a short-term option at a friend's house, what you create for yourself in a motel or your vehicle. So I'll be using the term houseless to better support those that are struggling in their housing situation. In 2018, King County, where Seattle lies, conducted their annual report for those experiencing houselessness. 12,112 persons reported being houseless. Of the 12,000, 6,320 were unsheltered, while the remaining 5,792 were sheltered. 2,207 of those sheltered were in transitional housing, and 3,585 were in emergency shelters. That's nearly 4,000 people using shelters at one time in one city. Of those who were unsheltered, 28% were in a vehicle, 13% were in a building or on the street, and the remaining 11% were in tents. While saying a homeless person probably conjures up images of a grizzled man with stereotypical issues sleeping on a street, it's important to remember that not only are those images you picture actual people, and most likely veterans, but houselessness is a spectrum full of people with a variety of needs, abilities, and histories. Additionally, thousands of families with school-aged children were, during the study, and are currently houseless. I can attest to that as I have worked with dozens of houseless students through the years. It's far more common than you think. 98% of the houseless persons surveyed stated that their biggest hurdle in getting housing was affordability, and if they were offered housing, they would accept it. And of those questioned, 53% were persons of color, but you guessed it, at only 33% of the region's population, persons of color are clearly affected, say it with me now, disproportionately. There was a 13% increase in deaths among homeless persons in Seattle from 2017 to 2018, leading to a shocking and record-setting 191 deaths. This included natural causes, death by suicide, and the most common cause, accident. Although, given the stigma and the situations, you do have to wonder if some of those weren't accidents, but either presented as such or someone didn't want to deal with the hassle of investigating their death. On the record, there were 12 homicides involving houseless folks that year. One of which was that of 26-year-old Daniel Alberto. Daniel had been living in an apartment in Seattle, but in 2018, he was no longer a resident there. On the streets, Daniel had a few legal difficulties and was known to police for having weapons and sometimes acting out violently. But a houseless person having weapons is not unheard of, as it is usually a necessary tool for self-defense while being on the street. In one interview I read, a woman said she would sleep with rocks in her hands so she could defend herself against attackers in the night. In September 2018, Daniel pleaded guilty after threatening a woman who lived near Nesbitt Avenue North. She had allowed him to sleep on the sidewalk in front of her building for a week, but when she changed her mind and asked him to leave, he refused. She called the police to have him moved. This led to him being charged with misdemeanor harassment. He had already been held for two weeks and given time served, so two weeks later, he was released. John Davis lived in the same area as Daniel, and he was fed up. 
Not worried about his fellow community members or humans, John grew a disdain for the local houseless people in his neighborhood, so much so that it verged on the edge of obsessive. He started to call the police on any behavior that he felt was suspicious. It got to the point that he texted someone about the situation and how he didn't feel it was being handled, and that he would need to, in his own words, quote, I might have to take extreme action against them in order to protect myself. Against those who had, in his eyes, wronged him. Because John felt that actions he had perceived as being the fault of his houseless neighbors was causing his rent to go up. The day after he sent that text, he called the police to report Daniel for trespassing and harassment. While reporting him, John said, They had better find and arrest the man or else. That same evening, he called 911 again to report he was following Daniel. He was asked to not follow anyone and to go home, waiting until officers arrived. He not only refused, he felt his claims were being ignored and he was going to be the only one that could solve the problem. So, according to police documents, he felt that now that he had engaged with such dangerous men, Daniel and his friends would now come after him, knowing who he was and where he lived, none of which was true. So he told the dispatcher he had no choice but to, quote, proactively seek them out as a form of self-defense. He also informed them he had a gun in his fanny pack and it wouldn't be good for Daniel if he came back. Two days later, the window. A window was broken in John's building and he was certain he knew who had done it, Daniel. Reporting him in the window to police multiple times, he again felt no one was taking his claim seriously. He even went so far as to tell the police that they had better arrest him or he would have to search for him and confront the suspect himself. On July 30th, John texted his friend about the incident and his continued growing rage. Texting, Homeless dude from South America broke my window. We're going to do something about this seriously. The we in this case being John and his adult son. Just a few weeks later, on August 11th, John called the police again to claim he had taken pictures of the man, Daniel, that he believed to have broken his window. While reports were taken, there wasn't anything done specifically. While I believe someone calling to report property damage is important and should be taken seriously, and could probably best be handled by a team of individuals that specialize in handling those types of cases as opposed to an officer wearing the hats of 40 different duties— Additionally, there should have been more focus on John's behaviors and threats. While most of the extreme threats were texts to friends that were found out after the fact, there were plenty of calls to police and red flags in his wording that should have warranted a meeting at the very least. Additionally, Daniel was not John's only target. He was known for confronting many houseless people, sometimes well-armed, about their being in his neighborhood. It was rumored that Daniel went to the Fremont Fellowship Hall, so John went down there in early October in hopes of confronting him. He wasn't there. Nevertheless, John shared his feelings with those that were there and recommended they all report Daniel to the police as well. October 25th, three months after the window incident, John was still at it and was once again headed to the Fellowship Hall to talk to the staff there about reporting Daniel. But before he could arrive, he passed Daniel walking on the street a mere 100 feet from the hall on Nesbitt Avenue North. The gun John frequently had on him had been in his trunk. However, he happened to have stopped on his way to the hall to take it from the trunk and move it to the front seat in case, quote, there was a problem. And wouldn't you know that in John seeing Daniel, there was indeed a problem. According to John's original report to police about what happened that afternoon, he engaged with Daniel, who was pacing before he walked quickly to threaten him at his front passenger side door. He then walked in front of the car, blocking John's ability to get away. Approaching the driver's side with a knife in hand, John, certain Daniel would enter the car to stab him with said knife or take his gun, took his self-defense into his own hands and fired a single shot at Daniel. Driving off, it was a block later that John stopped to call 911 once again, only this time he was confessing. Once taken into the station and interviewed, his statement mostly consisting of how angry and frustrated he was that nothing ever came from his broken window, police started to investigate his claims. That's when they found a surveillance video from the area and learned the truth about what happened. It turned out John wasn't just driving to the hall. He spotted Daniel and drove the wrong way down a one-way in order to get to him. Oh. John stopped the car near Daniel, and Daniel approached the driver's side door. 
They started to speak, and at the same time, John was pulling his car forward a few times. Daniel then turned, facing the back of the car, before he began walking away, undoubtedly recognizing the man that had been following and harassing him for months and wanted to be done with the conversation. Daniel then stopped and, looking as though something had drawn him back to the car, perhaps John yelling out, for example, he approached the passenger side door. The second he arrived at the window, he was shot once in the chest. John was never blocked in. None of that mattered to Daniel and those that knew and cared for him. Although he was taken to Harborview Medical Center in hopes of treatment, he was pronounced dead. John Davis was arrested, and with video proof, he was held on $1 million bail for the second-degree murder of Daniel Alberto. He is still in jail, and from what I could find, there has not yet been a trial or sentencing. According to police documents, there was a small knife found near Daniel, which to me sounds more like maybe a pocket knife, not any sort of blade per se, but that's not important. He was the victim here, walking down a street, being harassed by someone that decided to place the blame of how he felt about his community on people he felt were less than he. But it's important to remember that Daniel was a young man. For whatever reasons, he was struggling, but we must remember to humanize everyone, especially victims of crime like this. While some might look at him as a burden or a parasitic invader that needed to be eradicated, this was a 26-year-old kid that was loved in his community. One friend saying at his memorial, The true essence of Danny, as we all know, was tender and kind. He had such kind eyes. Sadly, that's just one of far too many stories about houseless persons facing discrimination, attack, and murder. Another, also out of Seattle, is that of 42-year-old Navajo woman Davina Garrison. It was Thanksgiving Day 2005 when a call to 911 was made by fellow houseless folks about a fire under the Alaskan Way Viaduct, just north of Pike Street Market. Fire arrived and put out the blaze, assuming it was just a pile of trash that had been lit by someone for warmth. As the flames extinguished, they realized it wasn't trash, it was a blanket. Upon peeling the blanket away, though, they were horrified to find the charred remains of a woman. Taken to the medical examiner, it was initially assumed she had fallen asleep with a cigarette or in the midst of starting a fire for herself. Then the autopsy showed a far worse fate. She had been bludgeoned in the head before being set on fire in what might have been an effort to destroy evidence or perhaps merely for the torture. That was 15 years ago. To this day, Davina's case remains cold and unsolved. No clues, no suspects. If you happened to have been in the Seattle area at Thanksgiving in 2005 and know anything about what might have happened to Davina, please call 1-800-222-TIPS. That's 1-800-222-8477. There's even a $4,000 reward for information that leads to this vicious, heartless, and senseless murder being solved. To honor her memory, a bronze leaf was placed outside the Seattle Justice Center with Davina's name etched into it. Today, we are joined by 25-year houseless advocate, the president of the board of directors of SHARE, executive committee member of WHEEL, and raging granny, Anitra Freeman. Anitra, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. I'm tickled to be here. In my story today, I already mentioned using the term houseless, which is a newer concept to most people. Can you touch on the meaning behind using the term houseless versus homeless? I'm glad if that makes people think, uh, makes housed people think that homeless people are not a different species that's, you know, spontaneously generated from sidewalk pavement, just people who do not have a house right now. It seems to be more important to housed people to keep that in mind than to homeless people. Homeless people just want a home. Right. They're not worried about how they're sounding politically correct or not. They're worried about food not and shelter. Quite sensitive about the political correctness. Understandably. So can you touch on what you and the people at Wheel or Share do for the houseless community members in the Seattle area? If I could just add a little bit to that. The one thing that homeless people are very sensitive about 
is being called homeless people and not the homeless. Absolutely. That is very important. You know, homeless people or houseless people, just make sure to get the word people in there. Can you touch on what you do with Wheel and what you guys do in your community? I'm going to leap way back. <laughs> okay. I got involved with Share and with Wheel in October of 1999 while I was homeless. First, by getting into one of the Share self-managed shelters. The Share Wheel self-managed shelters are hosted in mostly in churches and the participants let themselves in, govern ourselves, manage, uh, clean up and let ourselves out in the morning. It's a chance to be an adult. <laughs> yeah. And uh, even, even well homeless. And it, uh, we do a lot of shelter at very low cost uh, because of sweat equity, you know, because the participants are doing most of the work. I did a lot of volunteering down at the chair office. And at that time, Wheel was right down the hall at the chair office. And so I went over to check out Wheel. Walked into a room full of women sitting on the floor, pasting uh, drawings on the front of chat books. And it was Wheel's first poetry chat book on the occasion of Wheel's first homeless women's forum, a uh, public event where homeless women talked about homelessness as the experts. And so I definitely wanted to get involved with that. Um, also, I'm a poet, so I did a lot of uh, writing workshops with Wheel over the years, edited a lot of chapbooks. Eventually, we uh, got an offer from uh, an independent women's press, uh, Wit Press, to publish a real book. <laughs> and... Uh, but that's just one of the things that uh, exciting things that I got involved with with Wheel. Um, I helped both Wheel and Share start uh, a transitional housing project called the Bunk House out on Martin Luther King Way. I helped start New Shelter just before I got into housing. Uh, helped our shelter move to a new host. A lot of new shelters. Eventually in 2000, we did three things. Wheel and Share together started Tent City 3, which is now the longest running homeless encampment in the country. Wheel Shelter for Women. A uh, It's a low barrier shelter, which means, you know, in the self-managed shelters, you have to be able to self-manage, which means no alcohol, no drugs. You can't come in high or drunk, and you can't, you know, have any of that stuff in the shelter. A low barrier shelter is to keep people alive. The People with the most problems are also the people who are most vulnerable. So low barrier shelter meant any woman in any condition at any time of night, which meant it has to be staffed. And we hired staff, we hire our staff from our own community. They're all homeless or formerly homeless women. So we're doing two things. We're uh, giving shelter to homeless women, and helping other women get out or stay out of homelessness. And at the, in the same year <laughs> with all of that going on, uh, we started Women in Black vigils. Whenever somebody homeless dies outside or by violence anywhere in King County, there had been some awful murders in 1999, well, there always were, but, you know, they kind of piled up. Uh, 
toward the end of the 90s. And what was even more heartbreaking was the way they were treated in the media. So we said we wanted to raise up the dignity of homeless people in death and in life to make a statement that no human being is a throwaway. And we decided to uh, narrow, you know, the who we stood for to people found outside or by in a public and that was because those were the usually the most ignored or dism- treated dismissively. And we decided to do that. And then we waited for the first case. And it was folk life in 2000 when Michelle came up to me and said, we have someone, we have a death. Debbie Cascio uh, had been found underneath a tree in her sleeping bag and they thought it was a police case. It was actually years before we found out that she was uh, raped and strangled. And we found that out because a man in Florida was arrested for a similar crime and DNA matched. At the time, was there a reason that police weren't using you guys as community members to get the word out? Why wouldn't they invest in talking to people and letting everyone know, hey, this is what happened. One, there's a dangerous person out here. And two, let's protect each other and find who did this. Harkening back to uh, those, some of those deaths in 99, there was a series of rapes and murders of women who'd been picked up in Pioneer Square and their bodies left around the jungle around the outskirts of the jungle. And after like the third one of these, we actually contacted the police and asked them, is there a serial killer out there? Should we be warning women? Can you give us more information? And the police told us, no, it's not a serial killer. Eventually, they caught the guy. And then they said, oh, by the way, so that's how we related to police at that time. Right. <laughs> I'm sorry to say it hasn't improved a lot since then. Yeah, it would be nice to be consulted. And on the other hand, if uh, if homeless people got the idea that we fed information to the police, yeah. <laughs> they might not stop coming to us for help. Mm, that's a tough spot to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Sometime earlier this year, Reach, that does uh, homeless outreach, withdrew from the navigation team because going out to encampments along with police was ruining their relationship, you know, the trust of homeless people and their relationships with homeless people that their outreach depended on. That's such a shame. So understandable why they would be apprehensive but then also, if all of that could be cleared up, the way communication could be improved and protection could be improved, you know, if police were not how they are with houseless people. Exactly. And and exactly. If the police were more compassionate and patient and, and with homeless people and did not clear, you know, sweep encampments and sweep people from you know, street corner to street corner. Then when somebody in an encampment felt in danger or saw something going on illegal or wanted the, the drug dealing in the encampment to stop, they'd be more inclined to call the police. Like you said, you could stop a serial killer. The fact that you can see a houseless person's tent and and automatically you think oh there's drugs and there's this or you know all these negative things and that's the real danger and it's like that's just someone sitting there when literally they're being hunted by a serial killer 
which is much more of a danger to all people, let alone uh, those that are the actual victim of, of the crime. It's just maddening. Yeah. And, you know, homeless people want to be safe in their neighborhood, too. I've talked to a lot of homeless people who slipped up in the jungle and were furious that uh, drug dealers used the jungle and they wanted them out of there. By the city's own statistics, as well as a number of other studies, it's a minority of homeless people who use drugs. Actually, very few who can afford to deal. It actually is a great transition in my next question. What are some things that you think the average person doesn't think about when it comes to homeless people that you'd like to make sure people do think about before making those snap judgments? One of the basic things is years ago when I helped the shelter I was staying at move um, to to a new church up in Meadowbrook, Maple Leaf Church, the, we had a meeting with the facilities manager and the pastor, a few other people from the church. And the facilities guy sat there silent during most of the meeting. And at the end, he said, you know, I was feeling really worried about having homeless people and, you know, sleeping in our church, but you guys are just like me. That is the main thing I want to communicate. You know, we're people, uh, people who, who have had, you know, even, even the homeless people who are homeless because of some really bad decision on their own part, something wrong that they did. Who hasn't made a bad decision in their lives? <laughs> who hasn't done no kidding. Wrong? Who hasn't done something outright wrong? I and who hasn't been, you know, this close to that paycheck not covering it or that rent not going through or that one decision overlapping and you get lucky enough you skate by and don't end up with nowhere to stay. We've all been that close, if not closer. And it's easy to to consider homeless people as not like you when they look dirty and unkempt and act out of it, you know, and kind of move slow and act stupid. Exhaustion and a lack of facilities. You when you can't when you don't have a place to take a shower or to wash your clothes. Uh, you know, when I, while I was homeless, there was a, uh, a place in Angelines where women could do laundry. But you had to sign up and you usually had to wait for hours. I was by that time, you know, I was very quickly involved in this volunteer work with chair and wheel and with real change and, all over, I was all over the place all day long. I didn't have time to, you know, sit at Angelines for two or three hours waiting to be able <laughs> to wash my clothes. But uh, at Angelines, I could pick up pre-clothes. Well, what I did was wear, you know, I'd wear one set of clothes for two or three days, throw them away, <laughs> and change into a new set of clothes. Uh, that that was how I stayed, you know, neat, you know, that and, and, you know, bathroom sink washing. So it takes an effort to stay clean um, and, and nothing to help you do that. And then you never, ever, ever really get enough rest. You know, theoretically, you get eight hours of sleep a night because the lights go off at 10 and the lights come off at, on at 6 a.m. But you don't really. A rubber mat with two army blankets uh, uh, on the floor with 30 other snores going on around you. Uh, and not only that, you know, before I got into shelter, I was scared all the time, even while I was asleep. 
And even after I got into shelter, I was still scared all the time, even though I knew everybody in the shelter. It was, you know, I got into housing in February of 1996. My guts were knotted up until the summer of 2014. You just scared all the time. Well, when you're under that level of stress, with very little sleep, without, you know. Uh, Wondering where your next I, meal is coming I, from. Exactly. Uh, a friend once said that it's impossible to starve in Seattle, but it's also really impossible to get good, nutritious, balanced diet. And again, uh, I didn't have time to go you know, to one side of the city for breakfast and the other side of the city for lunch and somewhere else for dinner. Uh, I was on the go all the time, but there's always bagels, donuts, and coffee. Uh, so I lived during the day on bagels and coffee. Which and, fills you up, but certainly doesn't provide any kind of nutritional right. anything. Right, right. Uh, and it was six months after I got into housing before I could look at another bagel. <laughs> and then the first bagel I had, I had, I said, oh, that's what a bagel's supposed to taste like <laughs> when it's fresh. This doesn't have to taste like survival. This can actually be a delightful well, treat. So, you know, all those free bagels that we got were all at least a day old. Most of what people see when they look at homeless people who have very few resources. But we're still people. If you still, if you, there are lots of ways, safe ways to talk with a homeless person. You know, uh, it's not quite as easy to go out and visit the tent cities now under COVID, but you can still talk with a real change vendor. Uh, you can still, you know, still, you know, take donations to the tent cities or the tiny house villages and and talk with some people at six feet away with masks on. For so many people, it was just one mistake that they made. And I think for a lot of people, it's, you know, in conversations I have, it's almost, it allows for that distance. Well, I would never do drugs, so that couldn't be me. I would never have a mental illness. So that can't be me. I would never, that's how I keep it distant. If I don't make you a human, because then we're both human, that means it could happen to me. And that's too scary. Um, so yeah, to humanize and go talk to you, I say hi, just because someone's sitting there and asking for money and you don't have money, or maybe you don't like to give to people doing that, you can still smile. You can still say hi. You can still acknowledge that there's a human being right there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, very good insight there. Uh, it's, it's fear. And that's why one of the ways to break down that barrier is to give people something that they can do. Uh, you know, remind people that we're all in this together, the same forces that put somebody else out on the street or keeping you awake at night trying to figure out how not to get put out on the street. Yeah, uh, everybody's under under stress. We all need to work together to change. Personal problems uh, govern who falls into it. But they didn't create the whole. It's systemic problems that create the whole. If you have five people and four houses, you're going to have one homeless person. If you fix all of the problems that everybody has, you're going to have one healthy, well-educated homeless person. You're still going to have a homeless person until you fix the basic problem. What are some issues that you found 
that are maybe unique to the Pacific Northwest. One being our weather, you know, we have a lot of wet days. I'm sure that adds to difficulty of uh, the housing that they do have. I don't think people really uh, comprehend how dangerous uh, you can die of hypothermia in this part of the country when it's 55 degrees out. If you get wet and there's nowhere you can get dry, you'll die. That's why you know, they opened the severe weather shelters for long periods of rain, <laughs> not just for severe snow or, or uh, cold. Because you, you can, <laughs> the rain can kill you all by itself. I don't know how unique this is, but one thing that has always struck me is that this city thinks it's liberal. When we move this guy with, you know, a ponytail and down vest, Birkenstocks, uh, and, and I think he worked at Microsoft. And he was dead set that the church was hosting the shelter. Because the process had not been, the process wasn't right. <laughs> he should have been consulted long before. We had meetings with him for, for months after the shelter opened, just so that he could process himself out. <laughs> Eventually, I had liberal people tell me that we were being very cruel to homeless people by forcing them to stay somewhere that they weren't wanted. Yeah. yeah. Wait. <laughs> Wait, so like provide by providing the shelter that you guys were providing, but no one wanted them in that neighborhood. So you were the bad one for providing shelter for people that needed it, even though no one in the neighborhood wanted them there. Right. Okay. Just nobody yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. What? <laughs> Yeah, it, it takes a little bit, doesn't it? There are an awful lot of liberal people who would gladly pay for a homeless shelter as long as it wasn't in their neighborhood. Again and again, what I've seen is once people do have to live with a shelter in their neighborhood and they get to know real people, their feelings turn around. They get over it. I was tickled pink one day. Uh, I was visiting that that shelter uh, up north and uh, noticed one of the most outspoken opponents of the shelter was uh, sitting on the bus with a friend, telling him, bragging to him about the shelter that his neighborhood hosted. <laughs> then it became the liberal badge of honor on <laughs> right right i'm so right. liberal i live in a neighborhood with a shelter <laughs> exactly they just and leave out the part where they tantrumed about it for a long time beforehand <laughs> yeah 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 oh my gosh uh, so i'm i'm willing to give him i'm willing to let him have it <laughs> you know just <laughs> it's fear that creates that division and just getting to know people can be one way of, of getting past that fear. One lesson of the women in black, a friend of mine likes to say, they can argue with your anger, they can't argue with your grief. So by, by leading with grief, I mean, we do you know, make some angry statements about this shouldn't be happening, but we're, we're leading with grief. And it, it, it gets through to people when, when anger just makes them block. Three years after we started the Women in Black, uh, we felt that that wasn't enough. We needed a permanent public memorial in a public place. So we started the Homeless Remembrance Project, which took eight years. <laughs> but we, we now have. Uh, the Tree of Life in Victor Steinberg Park. And the Tree of Life has cut out leaves 
which are fallen leaves, uh, bronze leaves all over sidewalks, all over the area that have names and dates on them. And we have a website, fallenleaves.org, where every one of those people has a page and their friends and loved ones can post comments and stories, memories about them. And I've seen community happen on the website, happen at the leaf dedications. There's a lot of connections have been made. For the most part, people are very respectful and and sympathetic to the the women in black vigils and the uh, leaves and and the tree of life oh that is so lovely and that's lovely to hear the connections being made that out of something so sad and and terrible that good things are growing from it Mm-hmm. That's really lovely. Speaking of today's story was about Daniel Alberto and Davina Garrison. Did you happen to know either of them prior to their deaths or if you know of them at all to speak on them at all? I did not know either of them prior to their death, but you know, we stand for a lot of people. That's part of the message that you you don't have to know a person to care. Davina's death was a real heartbreaker she was she was murdered and then her body set on fire down there below the viaduct our dear medical examiner Richard Harris responded himself which is just one of the one of the things that shows you how that he cares for all people and we had sometimes when there's an especially violent or horrible death like that. Besides standing a vigil, women in black would go to the site of the death and do a cleansing ritual. And there were a lot of people for that, including a Native American. We you know, shook water from cedar boughs, had sage and all that. But I, I can still see that streak of smoke up the side of, of the concrete. Like I said, you're scared all the time. And when something like that happens, it hits the gut of every homeless woman. And that's one of the gifts of the women in black is, you know, homeless women come and find, you know, solidarity and emotional support at times like Davina's death. I know that I, um, well, I have bipolar disorder. I am subject even now, even with medication and all, uh, to occasional depressions. And at one time, I worried that maybe standing while these vigils for dead people would put me into a depression. I found out that if I stayed home, I went into depression. Going to a vigil, supporting each other, that keeps me out of depression. And letting the grief flow. The, uh, at least for bipolar depression, at least for me, depression isn't feeling sad. I've actually, at least once, been brought out of depression by a strong emotion, even a strong grief cuts through the fog and gets me moving. And then I go to the doctor. (laughs) I can get the, I have enough energy to get to the doctor. So that was the effect of, of Davina's death. It was painful to a lot of people and frightening to a lot of people. And also brought together a large community, which helped a lot of people get through that. Danny's death was really scary, too, because, uh, you know, he was he was killed by somebody who targeted him. They thought he was homeless and thought that he'd broken their window, uh, really had it in for homeless people. And we did, you know, have been hearing a lot of hate directed at homeless people, which is 
personally, my attitude is it's a sign that we're gaining. You know, it, it's a backlash uh, because we have been making progress. There were a lot of negative things being said, you know, by everybody back uh, before 2000. And now there are a lot more positive things being said. And, you know, there's backlash against it. That was worse than than nasty comments on the Seattle Times online. I wanted to just jump back to an earlier comment about, you know, what people should know, drug or alcohol or mental health problems that are keeping them homeless. Half of those people developed those problems after they became homeless because it sucks. You know, <laughs> it's really miserable. Um, I, I was lucky. I, you know, I had a caseworker who got me out of homelessness and, you know, into housing in a record four months. If it had taken four years, I'd have ended up using drugs, you know, anything to dull the pain. For a lot of people, that's situational. For the ones who do have drug and alcohol problems, they need housing first. You know, if you want some, any problem you have is easier to solve once you're in housing and is a lot harder to solve while you're still on the street. Your brain is in constant crisis mode. You're hungry. You don't feel clean. You don't feel good about yourself. You're struggling with, I like you said, just the mental health of being houseless. If you know where you're going to sleep, and you know where you're going to bathe, and you know where your food is going to be, and you know that you're safe, then you can find that job to apply for. Then you can build on your personal whatever you want to work on. If you've been sleeping uh, on the sidewalk for three weeks and haven't had a shower and haven't done laundry and haven't even been able to shave, and you have to haul around times. Yeah, go and go and get a job interview. Yeah. Go, go right ahead. With the pandemic, obviously that is a huge issue for houseless people and that community is affected so differently than people like myself that can just stay at home and stay safe. What do you know of that's being done for places that can't really allow for distancing, like in shelters? What kind of changes have been in place? And also, have you seen an increase in people needing services due to losing their homes because of the pandemic? First of all, the county and then the city did provide emergency funding for congregate shelters, they call them, like, like WHEEL. And, and share. They also opened temporarily some overflow shelters so that, uh, for instance, the wheel shelter has an official capacity of 40 and usually had between 60 and 70 women a night. Uh, we went from there to a firm cap of 25. We can only have 25 women. Uh, but there was uh, a an extra shelter opened by Catholic Community Services. The extra shelters have been slowly uh, diminishing, and we're really running low on referral options for women. But the the women in the, for the women in the shelter it's just been a new lease on life they're not exhausted they're not exhausted all the time they can take a nap in the middle of the day if they need it they can sleep in (laughs) yeah uh don't have to you know get up and out at seven o'clock in the morning they really have a lot more energy they're more interested in all kinds of activities um they're doing you know, very constructive things, interviews, et cetera, uh, doctor's appointments. And so it, it's, and there's a wonderful sense of community growing up because you aren't just spending a few hours a day together you know, or, you know, just nighttime sleeping together, actually spending many hours a day together. 
And uh, I, I love seeing how the women relate to each other up there and, and helping each other out in, in various ways, provide funding so that the wheel shelter and the share shelters can continue to be 24 seven. I hope that happens with all of the shelters uh, across the city. It's so humanizing. <laughs> it's really, really important. Well, like you said, even though you knew some of the people you were sharing shelters with, you still knew of them. Whereas this is like true community building and I've got my, your back, you've got mine, taking care of each other, learning and growing like a huge difference, I'm sure. Yes. I'm not sure about everybody's story, but I was down in, in the wheel office a couple of days ago when Michelle had to, you know, answer the phone, it was somebody about shelter and she had to say, I'm sorry, our shelter is full. Turned to me and said, that was the 10th call today. And had to say 10 times over and over again, we don't have anything. Is that a normal amount for you guys at this time of year, or would you contribute that to job loss? Well, it's it's because there's less shelter. And, you know, I'm sure that there are job losses. There are more homeless people. And there's also less shelter because... You're at half capacity, basically. Yeah, I mean, cut in half. And, and uh, normally... We just, uh, for 20 years, we just never turned a woman away. We would say, we'll find a spot in the, ha- the hallway for you. you know, we'll, we'll get you in and tomorrow morning we'll figure out something, you know, something else. We, we never, ever had to say we had nothing. We've been asking uh, desperately for for months uh, for more referral options, whether that's hotel rooms, new shelters, tiny house villages, anything. But it's just heartbreaking to tell 10 or more women a day, I can't help you. That's our life. That's what we're about. The damage to the relationships too for you guys, that's going to take a toll as well to not be that constant, not be the reliable place because you're trying to keep everyone safe. Especially now this time of year, I yeah. woke up this morning and I think it was 37 degrees or something. I had no idea it was getting that cold. And now it's like, now we're in it. And to still be at such small capacities and with how cold it's getting, it's truly a crisis situation. Yes. So for our listeners, what is the best way for us to be supportive of the houseless community? What can we do uh, to help as we're entering winter and, and the pandemic at the same time? Okay. Well, you know, first of all, like I said, uh, find a safe way to talk to uh, a homeless person or more than one because you, you know, what an individual needs, you can really only find out by talking to that individual. But there are some very general needs. We we need lots and lots more housing. And that means money. And that means that somebody's got to pay more taxes. So if you don't want your sales tax and your property taxes to go up, which I don't want to see, then we got to tax Amazon, Starbucks, Google. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Especially in Washington. I mean, you have Microsoft right there. You could tax them and probably end homelessness for all of Washington. Right. Do you think that Jeff Bezos would have gotten rich if he was born in Zambia? Yeah. Right. It is this, you know, he is that prosperous because of 
where he lived, where he started his his business. He has prospered from this community. And therefore, it's not at all unreasonable for this community to demand that he pay it back, that you know, that he give to the community that gave him his bricks. And it's also much better rational thinking for the big businesses to pay to have lots of housing and shelter and health services and the other things that the the uh, less prosperous people in the city need it's not helping anybody to have sick people wandering the streets it your health and your business and your workforce will all be better off if we're all better off so support taxing Amazon and other big businesses. Support that. It's going to take that level of money just to replace the housing we've lost because of development. And we need, because housing takes time, we need lots and lots more shelter. And because even shelter takes time, we need encampment. We need to share and wheel. These are homeless and formerly homeless people doing their own work to help themselves and each other. And, uh, Seattle should be proud because share and wheel are unique in the entire country. And uh, share, share and wheel together are the largest shelter providers in uh, King County. King County needs us, so please support us. <laughs> and where where can we find you, uh, your website, to be able to, you know, if, if people want to donate directly to you? Great. Sharewheel.org, S-H-A-R-E-W-H-E-E-L.org. And Wheel has our own website, by the way, wheelforwomen.org. Wonderful. This has been lovely and informative, and I really appreciate your time and insight on this. Well, um, I did want to add a little bit. We get most of our data on homeless deaths from the medical examiner. Sometimes we give him <laughs> uh, what we've heard on the street. Um, and over the past few years, we've been uh, working with some UW students. The medical examiner and healthcare for the homeless have done analyses of homeless deaths several times over the years. And the, the uh, UW students also uh, did a lot of analysis, and some of the things that they found between them. The average age of death of homeless people here is around 47 or 48. The average age of a housed person in King County is around 80. There, violent deaths, suicides, and homicides are vastly disproportional. Homicides all over the country have been rising. And as it does in times of stress, it's still disproportional among homeless people. Homeless people are maybe one or 2% of the population and 20 to 25% of homicides. We suspect that there's a disproportionality in the solution of in solution rate of homicides. And we have a UW student looking, trying to analyze that right now. In the first year that we stood vigil, 2000, we stood for five people. So far this year, there have been 99 hmm. deaths just outside or by violence. Deaths rise when 
the economic inequality rises. The real way to end homelessness is economic justice. You'll never end homelessness without economic justice. Looking at just murder and crime and thinking it's not political, you have to realize how intertwined all of that is from domestic violence to homelessness to serial killer being allowed, like that right there is political. A serial killer was allowed to be on the street killing people because of the politics of the nature of people being on the street. Interesting to hear you say like, yes, this is all correlated together because of course it is. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've been, I, I grew up in a liberal household and, you know, marched for civil rights and banned the bomb and all, all that all my life. Um, and the first year or so that I got involved with Sharon Wheel and, and, and others, uh, I, I told myself, I'm going to focus on homelessness and related issues. And about a year later, I realized everything's related. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, I have focused on everything. <laughs> but at least it is a good lens to look at things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And the domino effect of how everything touches everything. And yeah, it's right. it's fascinating and heartbreaking, but also hopeful because you can kind of follow that trail to say, oh, actually, if we look at Starbucks and Amazon and Microsoft, oh, it's all right here. Unfortunately, this won't be my last case like this that I will be covering. It's been such a delight speaking to you and I hope uh, we can get a chance to talk again in the future. And thank you so much for your, not only your time today, but all of your work through all the years, you know, the amount of people you've helped up there in Seattle, I'm sure is a huge, huge amount of people. So thank you so much for your service to your community. And thank you for talking with us today. You can reach Anitra at share, S-H-A-R-E, wheel, W-H-E-E-L.org and find out all about the amazing work she does. Great. Thank you. When I, when I worked in the fauna lab, um, my whole focus that quarter was skulls, and I had some, like five animal skulls that I was defleshing. So it takes a few weeks to do that. Oh yeah, we've talked about that mm-hmm. before. Is that like the, like the bugs eat them? You have like bugs. Eat we them couldn't afford up? that. We didn't have the high tech lab. So what we would do? <laughs> How we, expensive are bugs? Digging with a dental tool, you know? Couldn't like, do it. Couldn't do it. What was that I mean, smell? It no was way. it. it it just smells like cooking meat. That's the thing. It's not even foul. But like boiled, not, but not I, like good cooking yeah, meat. Yeah, I Flat, didn't. Boiled. I did not Oof. eat meat that entire time I worked there, though. I was a vegetarian then. Did you salt it? No. Well, it was. Did chewing. you ever take a bite of the bear meat? How do I say that without sounding so white? Growing rage. Growing rage. The name of my band. The name of my boner. <laughs> <laughs> Little rage. It's time to grow. <laughs> and it's like North Nesbit. Nesbit Avenue North. Okay. Nesbit Avenue. Avenue. Watch your mouths, all of you. Get out of here. Oh, just that was a that was a noise. That wasn't a word. That was just hmm. that check. No. So he's been there. Dotson. 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 Here. <laughs> Don't get cheap on me now, Dotson. Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. Oh, is that when he's getting the barbasol? The shaver cream, oh, okay. and then he puts it on, on the, the pie. pie. Oh my god, I know. It's so good. So good. They need to have a spinoff where it's the other perspective of someone who bought that pie. And like, what the fuck <laughs> is this? That'd be a good TikTok. You'll die first. Certainly. <laughs> I was just being hopeful. I will live forever. Well, all right. I can't <laughs> wait to laugh at your grave. <laughs> I won't have a grave. Well, whatever. Your your <laughs> cremains receptacle. Actually, I do like the idea of having a grave. Like a really creepy one for people to like go do grave rubbings on. Mm-hmm. Grave rubbings. Mm-hmm. New porn series. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ooh. Mm-hmm. Do it in graveyard. Just graveyard scenes. Grave rubbings. Grave rubbings. Grave rubbings. Just they're sitting at a grave talking about good old grandma and then things happen. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I am struggling with this <laughs> sentence. <laughs> 
Yeah, you are. I did it and I'll do it again. Will you guys sing Caribbean Queef for me? <laughs> Caribbean Queef. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 